Everybody else, turn to John 19. John 19. So we had our first occasional guy day, and it's first occasional because I don't know for how often we're going to do it, so I couldn't very well say first annual. We might not do it annually. We might do it weekly. Who knows? But on occasion, we'll do it. So our first occasional guy day yesterday, Justin Saltzman won the guy day cup. His uh, name will be amateurishly engraved onto that cup, uh, commemorating his victory in axe throwing and putt-putt. Let me encourage you. Now, the oldest age was 55, 54. (laughs) Sorry, Joe. It was Joe. He was the oldest one. Let me encourage guys that are older than that to to come and be involved. Uh, Talk to me. If you're like, my shoulder won't do axe throwing. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about what we can do, because these events, they're not just fellowship. They're discipleship. When, when different age groups hang out together, we didn't talk about Jesus or the Bible, I don't think, the entire time, if I'm, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. I, it wasn't part of any conversation I had. But because we're hanging out together and fellowshipping together, that's a part of discipleship. Biblically, fellowship is important. That's, that's how we grow together, how we get to know each other better. So if you're an older guy and you think, well, axe throwing, I just can't do it. Come on, y'all. Y'all can do this. Y'all can do putt-putt. That, that, I know you can handle that one. What can we do that would still be able to uh, allow us to do 8 to 98 uh, age range and, and have everybody or as many people as possible participate? Um, so we'll think about that as we move forward. But that goes for you ladies, too. When there's a ladies' event... It's same age range. We're, we're intentionally breaking down these siloed age groups to put younger with older and older with middle and middle with both to, to get us all together to contribute to our discipleship as an entire church and as a family, a church family. So be involved in that. Uh, that was great yesterday. We failed earlier in, well, April, actually, to acknowledge our staff anniversaries. Uh, Etta and Justin have been on staff now for a year, if you can believe it, and so we wanted to acknowledge that, uh, congratulate them, and you're thinking, well, Chelsea, yeah, yeah, give them a hand clap, and you're thinking, well, Chelsea started at the same time, well, no, she's July, because uh, Amy held on a little longer than uh, Tom did, so... Um, We'll celebrate her in July, if I remember to do it, and somebody reminds me. So, uh, congratulate them and thank them for their service to our church. John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30 is what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion. We'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. Let's do our memory verse uh, together. Next would be on the next screen after this one. There we go. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who reigns in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. John 15, 5 and 8. Excellent. Good job. We've got uh, our next verse picked out. We're going to be in Jeremiah during the summer. 
Uh, we're continuing the theme of producing fruit. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, but uh, we're excited about that series. Uh, I think it was in the slides, but we didn't, haven't announced it yet. Our D groups are going to transition for the summer from reading, uh, from discussing um, the, the, the Bible readings and the sermon and connect group lesson. We're still going to have the Bible readings through Jeremiah and Lamenta- Lamentations. Connect group and the sermon will still be about that. But we're going to do the uh, Bible study radical by David Platt. It's six weeks. It's going to be end of June through July. It starts the first week in July through the first week of August. It's, it's six Sundays. Oh, it's on the screen. There we go. Um, we're going to meet here and uh, on Sunday nights at five. There's a video that goes with it, 20, 30 minutes, something like that. We'll watch the video together. Then, depending on who comes and who wants to do what, and this will all be discussed in the next few weeks, we may divide up into groups across the church to discuss it, uh, go through the group time. We may do it as a group in here. I don't think we fully decided. Yeah, it'll depend on how many people sign up. So, I uh, want you to be aware of that, begin to make those plans. Uh, that's after the busy month of June. Uh, we'll start that in July. So, um, and, it, and, and get ready to lose your toes. I ain't talking about just getting them stepped on. I'm talking about getting them smashed off. First, as a professor of mine used to say, first rattle out of the box, he just kicks us in the teeth, uh, the author does, and it's a good, a good teeth kicking. No, I'm, I'm not discouraging them. I'm just telling them. Discipleship is hard, y'all. Being like Jesus is hard. It's not easy. And we've got to be uh, corrected and directed, and, and he does that. All right. John 19, verses 17 through 30. Jesus' crucifixion. It's not a super original title, uh, right? But there is some intentionality there. I'm not, it's not descriptive. As in, this is the crucifixion of Jesus, or the crucifixion that happened to Jesus. It's possessive. This is Jesus' crucifixion. In the fullness of time, the hour had come. He decided when he would be crucified. Knowing everything that was going to happen, he determined. He, at the end, uh, gave up his spirit. So it's intentional that we're talking about or calling it Jesus' crucifixion. As I prepared this week, I thought about a couple of times the movie Miracle on 34th Street. Y'all remember that movie? I'm talking about the original one with Maureen O'Hara and Natalie Wood and the guy, I don't even know that actor's name. Uh, Anybody know it? Anybody that, that trivia? Okay, doesn't care, doesn't matter. Basis of the movie, old guy named Chris Kringle gets out of a, a senior adult home and shows up at Macy's to uh, be their Santa Claus for the, the, the holiday season. Most people believed he was crazy. And they were trying to have him recommitted to this home that he was from. And uh, at the end of the movie, I, I'm, I know spoiler alert, but y'all, it was made in like the 40s. So if you haven't seen it yet, sorry to spoil the ending for you. Um, they had a, a, a hearing in court to, to decide if he really was the Santa Claus or just an, an imposter or an impersonator. 
So uh, they get up before the court, and the, the judge is wanting to run, I think, maybe for Senate or something. He's got a campaign manager that says, look, you cannot rule against Santa Claus. And he said, but I can't sit up there and say he is because the man's crazy. Well, so you've got to figure something out. The punchline, the way he figured it out, the lawyer did a good job of presenting his case and saying, the post office is a branch of the government or a service of the government, he said, and the post office works very hard not to make mistakes. Let's just assume that. Um, back then, I guess back then it was, it, yeah, Brian's not here, so I'm not, he, he won't hurt me um, for uh, saying this. They said, uh, if he, here, he, he got three letters addressed to Santa Claus, came to this gentleman, Mr. Kringle. Doesn't that prove it? No, it would have to be, uh, I ha well, I have more, and he said, well, I will see them all. And they bring in this train, basically, of letters addressed to Santa Claus, and the judge gets to say, look, I'm not gonna, one to go against a, a, uh, an official service of the government to say he's not. Boom, he is. And that's what they declare this guy to be Santa Claus. And we assume that it's a loophole, and we go on, and that the movie wraps up, and, and uh they, Chris Kringle invites the, the guy, the lawyer, and um, Maureen O'Hara and Natalie Wood out to this party, and it's a, uh, a ploy to get them out to this neighborhood, and Natalie Wood, uh, Susan, sees the ha house and says, that's, mommy, stop, or Mr. whatever's name, stop, stop, that's the house that I asked Santa Claus for, and they go in, and it's, it's got the swing in the backyard, and, and it's, well, that's just a coincidence, and as they're leaving, his cane is hanging on the mantelpiece, Chris Kringle's cane. So we leave this movie going, was he or wasn't he? Right? It, we're, we're never sure throughout the movie, but even at the end, we're not super sure. But the, 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 again, the punchline was, well, the government said he was, so he is. And this is an odd introduction, I know, for this uh, sermon, but it's it's what I thought about as we got as I worked on this sermon, old Chris Kringle seemed to be much more in control of things than everybody around him knew. Oh, they said he was crazy. They said he wasn't who he said he was, but turns out he probably was. Now, where are the similarities here? Well, it, we know that Jesus has been in control the whole time. Every passage we've looked at, just about it leading up to this, had phrases like, knowing his hour had come, and, and knowing all that was about to happen. We knew Jesus was in control. We, we have no, we, the reader, have no real uh, question about Jesus' identity, but those in the account, in the story, do. They're wondering, they, is, he, is this guy crazy? Is he, is he not? Is he who he says he is? The disciples are fairly certain, but even they don't quite get it, Right? But when Pilate hangs that sign over his head, suddenly the government has declared what the Jews denied and the reader already knew. Jesus is king. Well, that sign didn't happen by accident either, as we're going to see this morning. So to this point in the narrative, Jesus has been slapped, mocked, beaten, stripped naked, whipped, and paraded in front of a crowd back and forth between Pilate's house and a courtyard. And that crowd then calls for his killing. 
that's where we find ourselves in the story. And now it gets really bad. As bad as that sounded, and as bad as it was, it gets worse. And as bad as it is, and as, as worse as it gets, that sentence works, Jesus is in control of it the entire time. Now, as we look at this passage, verses 17 through 30, we're going to chart two parallel paths. Or this morning I was thinking about it, and maybe it's one thread through this passage, but at various points we're going to come to a knot in the thread that's going to stop us for just a second, slow us down a little bit so we have to think about it, but then we're going to continue moving down that thread. Or maybe the two-column thing works better, whatever works for you. That thread, or one column, is going to be the theological discussion of, of this passage. And then the second column, or maybe the knots along the way, are going to be the application of this passage. The, theolo- the, the theology of it is that Jesus was in control every moment of this passage. It was all going as it had been planned to go. The application knots, or the application column, is that every moment of this narrative, of this story, Jesus was living the obedience that we are called to. And we're going to reference some things that, we, uh, that he has talked about as we move through it. To put it another way, our theological thread weaving it together is Jesus' sovereignty, and the points this morning that we're going to talk about for each section will be the application. So, what's our big idea? It's really two big ideas because it's the thread and the knots, but it's the only way that I could think to express it. Every moment of the crucifixion scene was fully in Jesus' control and an example of obedience for us. There are two things going on here in this story that we need to see. So let's read John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30 together this morning. Then they took Jesus away, that's the end of verse 16. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them up into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. 
A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Theology, application. Again, our points are going to be the application, and we'll discuss the theology as we move through it. Number one, the application we see here is take up your cross. Verses 17 and 18. Now, the theology here, we'll discuss that first, is that the scripture says Jesus took his own cross, carrying the cross by himself. Now, we know from the other gospel writers that eventually he just couldn't bear it anymore. This cross piece could have weighed as much as 100 pounds. He has already been beaten uh, almost to death, whipped so that he basically has no skin on his back at all anymore and probably doesn't have much on his ribs and stomach. Uh, that's all been ripped off by the, by the whips. And he's got to carry this cross. And it was, uh, they normally took the longest route because they wanted as many people as possible to see this criminal and for it to be a deterrent to everyone else. If you do that, if you do what he did, this is what you get. But you are so close to death, and especially Jesus at this point, that they had to take that cross off of him eventually and give it to somebody else to carry, Simon of Serene. But he took his own cross. The cross was not given to him. Carrying the cross by himself. He took the cross that was his to carry. He took the cross that was his to uh, be crucified on. Y'all already ought to see the application coming, but let's build the suspense a little bit more. He decided, today is the day that I drink of the cup that has been given to me. Today is the day that I lay down my life for my friend, John, my friends, John 15, 13. Today is the day he shows no greater love possible than to die for those who stood at his, the base of his cross and mocked him and hung next to him and mocked him and put him on the cross because they didn't believe what he said. He died for those. Today was that day, and he chose that day. And he was hung between two sinners. He is... Uh, Fulfilling prophecy that uh, I believe it was Isaiah that said he was counted among the, the rabble, among the, 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 uh, the criminals. That's where he would be. See the theology of it? All of it, right in that, that vignette. And that's, this passage is divided into vignettes. It's, it's not seamless. It's not flowing. It's Here's us, what was going on here, and here's what's going on here. And this one, we see Jesus doing exactly what he was supposed to do, exactly when he was supposed to do it. Jesus is in control. The application? Jesus literally did what he told us to do. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want a vision of that, an image of that, and we need it because one of the things we do is we say, yep, this is my cross to bear, right? I've got, oh, this is, something's going bad in my life, that's my cross to bear. No, that's not your cross to bear. This is your cross to bear. 
the method of your execution. To be a disciple of Jesus is the call to take up your own instrument of death and go to your grave following Jesus. Being a disciple will kill you, is what Jesus is saying. And if we go back, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving away some of the beginning of Radical, so just, just know you're going to hear this again in a few weeks. If you go back, people are asking Jesus, what do I need to do to follow you? you here, you take this instrument of execution, you carry it until they use it on you. That's how you're my disciple. What do you mean, Jesus? And this day, he says, this is what I mean. You carry this, and you let them kill you, all to be obedient to the Father. Y'all, that is not squishy, make-me-happy, consumeristic, come-to-church, Christy-American-anity. It's not any of that. It is hard, awful, follow-Jesus sort of stuff. That's what we're called to. This is not soft. This is when he says, be like me. And we see it here when Jesus takes up his cross. Number two, blessed when they insult you. The Beatitudes of Matthew, he says, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and kill you and think they're doing good things, following God. The theology here is that Jesus was, as king, was proclaimed to all, both Jew and Gentile. What's going on here? Pilate puts this sign up on the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That sign speaks of who Jesus is. It tells everybody who walks by the cross, and we know it was just outside the city, it was probably on the side of the road, so everybody going in and out could see it. That's the way the Romans liked to do it. When they marched him through the city with the cross piece on his back, or Simon uh, of Serene carrying it at some point, they would have carried this sign in front of them, telling everybody what this man is dying for. So they marched through Jerusalem. Don't miss the fact that just a week earlier, just five, five days earlier, Jesus marched into Jerusalem, and they said, Hosanna to the king. And now five days later, they march him out saying, here's the king. Because he was the king. And they were proclaiming it to everybody. They were not wrong. But Jesus knew he was the king. I don't know what he was thinking at this moment, but I've got to believe that he's going, yep, hang that sign. Let them know one more time who I am. Now, the application here is that it was done as a mockery. Pilate wrote this sign somewhat to a good bit to mock Jesus. You know, in his, in his interview of him, his uh, cross-examination, he first question he asks earlier when he gets him in there, he's a, a little bit shocked, and he says uh, in verse 33 of chapter 18, are you the king of the Jews? Th this is what everybody's telling me the king is? 
so there's some mockery in him of this uh, of him, the King of the Jews. When you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and then you have to say to a public that and a culture that completely disagrees with you that abortion is wrong, that transgenderism is wrong, that gay marriage is wrong. When you stand for those things, you will be mocked for it. We're promised. And we see Jesus willing to go to the cross. Y'all remember also, and we're going to get here in just a second, he will be hung on that cross naked. All of our pictures, they, they protect us a little bit from that image. But that's how he would have been there. There was, there was no more shred of dignity allowed Jesus. They took everything they thought they could. Now it was also meant to mock the Jews. To say, here's your king, y'all. You, you, you think you would throw off Rome? And they're going to try here in just uh, 37 years to do it, and the temple will be destroyed because of it. You think you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're suffering now? You think you... Here's your king. This working out for you? Any king but Caesar? You know, no. No. It was a mockery. But God will use your persecution, your mocking, the evil spoken about you to proclaim his name in glory. We could put it another way. Uh, what Pilate meant for evil, Jesus meant for good. Yeah, Pilate hanged that sign. Mock the Jews who are crucifying me. Mock me for saying, uh, uh, for agreeing, or at least not denying, that I am the king. But you know what? One day my followers are going to read this passage. John and Mark and Luke and Matthew are going to tell people for 30, 40 years, and then they're going to write it down because folks are dying off. They've got to get this on paper. They're going to know that when I died, I was the king of the Jews that I told them I had been the entire time. God's going to use what you are doing to proclaim who I truly am. Application for you, God is going to use what you are going through, the persecution, the mocking, the, the slander, the lies, to give himself glory, to proclaim his name. Blessed are you when they insult you. And the blessing is that God is going to use you. Number three, Jesus told us to sell our possessions, told the rich young ruler, what do I need to follow you? Sell everything you have. And he went away sad because he was very rich. Verses 23 and 24, we see this, this vignette. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, they divided it into four parts. We know there were four soldiers based on this and in other places. They, they took probably his uh, sandals, his, his turban or the, the head covering, um, his, uh, and two other articles of clothing uh, that I can't remember off the top of my head now. His, his, his outer cloak or vest looking thing and probably a belt. They divided those four things up among them. Did I say sandals? I think I said that at the first. Yeah. 
But he had this tunic that was one piece. They didn't want to tear that up, so they gambled for it. And as it says right here, so that Scripture might be fulfilled. Where it says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Interesting thing about Hebrew Scripture, particularly the Psalms, Hebrew poetry. When Hebrew poetry repeats something like that, it's, it's parallelism. They're not saying two different things. They're saying one thing in two different ways. So the, uh, the psalmist just meant to say one thing. They divided my clothes among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. That was just supposed to give us one image, but two different pictures uh, to, to see it. But what John realizes and what happens here is that it is so minutely fulfilled that it actually fulfills both of those parallel passages. It's not one thing going on. It's two things. They divided and then they gambled. So it, it, uh, it minutely is the best word I can come up with, fulfilled these two little passages. Jesus the Word, the Word made flesh, the, the pre-existent uh, Son with the Father, predict, predicted this action. Jesus was there when the psalm was written. As a matter of fact, uh, in some way, Jesus was part of why the psalm was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on those who wrote Scripture. The Trinity was a part of the writing of Scripture. Jesus sitting there that day, whatever it looked like, the Son sitting there with the Father and the Holy Spirit, as the psalmist penned this psalm, knew that in some 600 years, 500 years, that he would hang on a cross while four guys at the base of that cross divided up his garments and cast lots for the tunic. Tell me Jesus wasn't in control of this. Tell me he didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They were fulfilling, those four soldiers were fulfilling what Jesus had said through the Psalms that they would do. As he looks down on them. And not far. You know, we, we have some images of what uh, crucifixion looked like. Chances are he was just high enough off the ground to get his feet off the ground. We always see the pictures where they're hanging up high, and we, we don't know exactly, but that's probably not likely. One, the Romans wanted you to see everything. They wanted you to know what you were looking at, so he probably, his face was probably no higher than this. Arms outstretched, nails through the wrists, probably not the hands. Maybe through the hands and they tied the arms up, but probably through the wrists because that hurts worse and it hits a nerve in there that makes it harder to pull up, to breathe. We always see the, the feet placed over each other. Most likely, those feet actually straddled the side of that upright piece and they nailed through the sides, through the ankles, into the wood so that he pushed this way, he had some flex in his legs because that's how they made him last longer. Give him a little flex in the knees so they could pull up and breathe and then hang and suffocate for a little while. And then push up with their legs, pull up with their arms and breathe. 
It was right there. So he wasn't looking down from 10 feet. Closer than this, he could see these guys gambling for his clothes. And he knew it. Because he had come to this day. This hour had come. Application? To fulfill the plan of the Father, Jesus had not even any use of his clothes. Jesus needed nothing, no possession at all to be obedient to the Father. When he says to the rich young ruler, sell everything, I believe he meant for that person to sell everything. Doesn't mean he means for everybody to sell everything. But if he tells you to sell everything, you better sell everything. Because what he is saying is, to him especially, you don't need any of that to be obedient. As a matter of fact, the day Jesus hung on the cross, he had nothing. And yet he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Folks, you don't need anything to fulfill God's will. You don't need anything to be obedient. And when you follow Christ, everything you have is now God's to use and or remove as he sees fit. It's not yours anymore. That's discipleship. You want to follow me? Get rid of everything. You don't need anything. Nothing material matters. And this is why there, I have such a tremendous problem with any sort of theology, any sort of preacher that says, come to Jesus and you'll be rich. Give a seed of faith to this ministry or that church and he will make you wealthy. Ooh, uh-uh. Will God give you something? Maybe, sure. But if he does, bank on it, pardon the pun, that he has given that to you to use for his glory and for his will, not for your vacation or new car or boat or gun or whatever it is you might spend that on and that's just one example everything you have is God's we move to number four leave family behind verses 25 through 27 he looks at these four ladies he looks at his mother who incidentally he calls woman and the last time he spoke to her in John he called her Woman, uh, it, this is a great passage from Mother's Day. Um, one, you know she is remembering what Simeon said, and a sword will pierce your soul. That's still her baby boy. Doesn't matter. <laughs> this is a second person of the Trinity incarnate. That's the boy she gave birth to. And I'm not even a mother. So I can't imagine. But you know that's what she's thinking. That's my son up there. But the truth is, when he began his ministry, starting in Cana, she was, the relationship changed. It's, it's woman, not mom. Because she doesn't even, she's treasuring these things in her heart. Simeon, Anna, all this stuff going on when he's 12 at the temple. But she's not a believer. She's a mom. So she's going to be there for her son, even though she probably agrees with the other kids. He's a little off his rocker. I know, 
but he's your big brother. He's my firstborn. We're gonna, I'm going to be there for him no matter what. Y'all, there's a, whole, there's a whole sermon right there. She is not a believer yet. We have no indication that any of the family believed until after the crucifixion. Then James, his brother, believes and writes letters and becomes the head of the church and, and others. And yet she is right there at the foot of that cross. Staring her baby boy in the face. But he says, woman, your son, speaking of John, your mother. The theology, he's taking care of his mother from the cross. He is showing that that, that relationship is and has been different for a while now than when he was a child. He is telling the world, as Scripture now tells us, that though he was born, though he was human, that every human relationship is subordinate to his position as the second person of the Trinity, the Savior of the world. Everything else goes by the wayside. Theologically, he is more than, much more than, her son. And his purpose is greater than his relationship with her. But he is still going to take care of her. He's still the firstborn. And that culture, that means something. So he passes him off, passes her off, not to the next oldest brother, which based on... um, other Gospels was probably, uh, there were two brothers um, that are mentioned, and I'm going to forget one of their names. Yeah, but that he's not mentioned. Joseph, which is Joseph, Jr. And um, I've lost it. And it may have been the older one. I heard somebody say something. Was it James? I don't think he was mentioned. Anyway, that, that doesn't matter. I get caught up on some details that aren't important. Uh, there were brothers. We know there were, there were brothers that would have, could have taken care of her. Can you imagine what those brothers were doing? Well, I mean, they're probably not there anyway, but when they heard about it, like, what about us? Who was he giving Mary to? His follower. The disciple whom he loved. The disciple that actually might have been his cousin. It's possible that the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, was Mary's cousin. Maybe one of those mentioned here. Who knows? And he gives his mother to somebody who's been following him. There's a a theological statement there that we entrust our family to our Christian family, not to our blood family. Our blood family may not be what's best for some situation like this, but instead believers. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, but that's, that's what we're seeing here. What's our application? The call to leave family is not a metaphor. When, when Jesus said, you can't be my follower unless you are willing to leave mother and father, sister and brother. Unless you are willing to put all that. Folks, take up your instrument of execution. 
sell everything you have, hold on to nothing, and forsake your family. Tell me again Jesus just wants us to be happy? Come to Jesus and you'll be happy? Oh, by the way, when they persecute you and mock you and kill you and think they're doing it in the name of God, discipleship is not easy. Some of the time, most of the time, maybe even, it's not fun. And yet we are called to leave it all behind. He, from the cross, is leaving family behind. He's taking care of her, but he has left her and said, this is more important. For any number of reasons, and regardless of the results, family is second place to your discipleship. Oh, I can't be discipled in this manner at this time because we have a family event. No, you can't do a family event because you need to be discipled. Jesus has called me to take, I've told y'all before, grandparents that have sued, like in court, sued their children for custody of the grandchildren because the children were going to be missionaries in a country and the grandparents were worried for the safety of the grandchildren. And they sued for custody. You know what that is? That is selfish, sinful disobedience on the grandparents' part. Because family is second to everything else. For all the reasons and regardless of the results. We leave behind family. Number five, come all who are thirsty. After, Jesus, after this, when Jesus knew everything was now finished... That scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Really matters where you put the comma in that sentence. It's either after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Everything was finished, scripture was fulfilled. He said, I'm thirsty. Or, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, comma, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Eh, I lean toward the latter on this one. The theology here, he was literally thirsty. I'm not going to deny that. But he is fulfilling psalms, more psalms. Now, there is one psalm that talks about, I'm parched, my tongue cleaves to my mouth. He's fulfilling that one too because he's left no stone unturned. But he is more broadly, more clearly speaking of a soul thirsting for God. As a deer pants for water, my soul thirsts for you. That's Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Psalm 63, 1, my soul thirsts for God. That's the sort of thirst he is talking about. We, this, this image, this passage should make you think of the Samaritan woman when he sat down at the well and she comes and he says, give me a drink. Do you know the passage, the scripture never says whether he got his drink? I don't think he's been thirsty since that day to this one. But he never got his drink. Why? Because it wasn't about water, was it? It was about salvation. We get to this passage and he says, I'm thirsty. And he was thirsty. He was dying. He was thirsty, there's no doubt. But it wasn't about something to drink. It was about his thirst for holiness. It was about his thirst for obedience. It was about 
slaking the thirst of those who would come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Application, he thirsted for a drink, but more than that, he thirsted and hungered for that righteousness, which is just obedience. And he hungered and he thirsted for that righteousness and obedience in us. I thirst to be with my Father. I thirst to finish this work so that others could come to me and have living water and then in those people a wellspring of life would flow out of them out of us to those that also thirst he thirsts because he knew we would thirst he thirsts because he knew others will thirst and they will come to us for that living water and we can tell him you know what I thirsted too But I came to the well that will never run dry. And I found living water for my soul. And last, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Tetelestai. One word. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit is is good. Better, he handed over his spirit. If we read back all the way back to the beginning of the trial, uh, actually in the garden, Jesus was handed over to the, the mob. He was handed over to the Jews. The Jews handed him over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to be crucified. But Jesus handed over his life. No one took his life. He gave it. He decided. They were shocked when he was dead. They last days unless we break their legs, which we know from other gospel accounts they're going to want to do. Actually, from this one, when we read on, rather. He was already dead. Why is he dead? They're not supposed to die this quick. They're supposed to suffer more. Man, that's no fun. Why was he dead? Because he decided the moment he would die. Jesus laid down his life. Jesus handed over his life. Nobody took it. Application, unless you hate father and mother, brother and sister, dot, 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 even hate your own life. Luke 14, I think. Hate your own life. You cannot be my disciple. Your life, like your possessions and your families, is God's, not yours. When I came to Jesus, my whole life was his. Not when I surrendered to the ministry, but when I trusted him as Savior. When I said, I want to follow you. We say, hey, y'all follow Jesus. Come down front Say a prayer, maybe get baptized, little, little, maybe a little embarrassing, you don't like crowds or whatever. But once you do that, you, then you just sit in the pew for the rest of your life. No! 
You take up your cross, you, your, your method of your death, you sell everything you have, you leave your family, and you be willing to die because you took up your method of execution. He wasn't joking. Take up this thing that will kill you so that at one point in your life, it will. Discipleship will kill you. I'm a great marketing guy. Don't deny it. Come to Jesus and die. We just don't put that on signs. Being a disciple means hating, rejecting, seeing as worthless compared to everything else, especially God, Jesus, holiness, your life. If we didn't get it, he makes it clear in Revelation. I wish you were hot or cold, not good or bad, not hot or cold, good or bad, but hot or cold, what you're supposed to be. If you're cold water, you should be cold. If you're hot water, you should be hot. But you are nothing. You put it in your mouth, you can't feel it. You get in it, you can't feel it because it's tepid. You're vomitous. Because you're not what you're supposed to be. You're not yours. I'm not mine. I'm God's. And when Jesus took that cross, he showed us. He saved us, but he showed us this is where you're supposed to be. We are crucified with Christ. We like to say that figuratively, and it is figurative. It's literal when it comes to our souls. It is crucified. The old way is dead. The new person is alive, buried with him in death, raised to walk in the newness of life. We love the metaphors, but then we want to make the hard stuff metaphors too. And Jesus says, come and give up your life. But he also says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't see rest as carrying my method of execution. doesn't sound very restful. Selling everything I have, rejecting my family, even being willing to die. I have come that you might have life. I'm carrying my method of execution. And you might have it more abundantly. After I sell everything I have and leave my family? Because we still think like a consumer. We think of stuff and God thinks of souls. We think of now and God thinks of eternity. We think of comfort and God thinks of holiness. Come, all you are who are weary and heavy laden. Take my, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart. Yeah, it's hard. Yes, give up everything. Be like the man 
who found a pearl in a field, great, inestimable value. And he went and sold everything he had so he could have that field with that one pearl. Give everything you have so you can have Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That you put your son on the cross. That he willingly went. That he gave up his life. That he did all the things that he has told us to do. Not some distant movement leader who gives commands from a palatial home and comfort, but one who did everything he has told us to do. God, may we respond in obedience. May we respond in faith. May we take up our cross, sell everything we have, reject family, hate our lives, so that at the point we are obedient, we can say it is finished. We have been obedient. We have done what we were told to do. We have fulfilled our calling as disciples of Jesus. Lord, remove every hindrance, every stumbling block, every sin that so easily entangles us so that our focus may be radically and completely centered on you. Lord, change our hearts by your Holy Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I invite you to come and be a disciple of Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, yeah, giving your heart to him, repenting of your sin, being baptized, all part of it, but you hear the call to give up everything and follow him. Will you do that this morning? Well, Michael, you didn't do a very good sales job. It doesn't sound nice. Y'all, it's not nice. It's phenomenal. Life abundant, an easy yoke, rest for our weary souls with the cross, with the sold possessions, with the rejected family, with the near guarantee of death at the end. Oh, by the way, you're going to die at the end anyway, in case you weren't aware. Yeah. It's better than good. Come to Jesus this morning. As we sing, decisions are on the screen that you might want to make. Oh, I skipped the verse. I think y'all got it this morning. What is God telling you this morning? As we worship, you come to him.